You may be seated. Let's pray together. Oh God, we come to you this morning and we do say that the prayer of our heart is that we be humble and contrite before you, broken. We know that you desire these things more than even the sacrifices that were made by the Old Testament saints. In fact, you would not receive their sacrifices unless they were humble and contrite and broken in heart and mind and spirit. And so, Lord, we assume no less of you now. You are still a righteous God, a holy God, totally separate from us. Nothing like us, really, in your essence. Only the fringes of your ways are seen in your creation. The very outskirts of your magnificent, beautiful, holy existence. Your glory. As we saw this morning, as we heard this morning, from all of eternity you have had a covenant with yourself. Between yourself, the Son, and the Spirit. You have not, Lord, forgotten that covenant. Never Ever have you turned your back on that covenant, but you have slowly, methodically, patiently, lovingly, graciously worked that covenant out, even in your Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, as Solomon and others reflected at the dedication of your temple, the fact that they have been a wicked people, Lord, we confess we are wicked I'm wicked. This people gathered here is wicked. Father, we have no hope outside of you because we are totally incapable of anything that is good in your sight. Our best is but filthy rags before you. Worthy of hell fire for all of eternity. And so as Solomon reflected, it was in these times and these seasons that you dried up the rain from Israel. So dependent, God, are we on you, and yet we don't even give it a thought. And God, forgive us for this. God, help us in this to look to you. And remember that if we will turn from our wickedness and look into your beautiful face and beg and plead with you, you will forgive us. And you will not depart from us. And you will bless us all for your name's sake. And for the glory of yourself and your Son and your Spirit. Jesus, we come to you in this time of reflection over your Scripture, even your own words in Matthew. Lord, And we ask that you would attend them with the Spirit, that they would be made powerful by your Spirit. This is all for naught unless you do something in the hearts of your people. So God, I beg you, for your own sake, Lord, for your own name's sake, do a work today so that the people might leave not impressed with Christ's fellowship. But God, may they leave here saying, what a wonderful God. What a marvelous Lord. What a magnificent grace. Oh, to be part of that. God, make that their prayers they leave. It's in your name we pray and depend on completely. Amen. 
I first of all want to thank you for time to spend in reflection and thought and vacation, as some call it. It is vacation. It was a great time with my family. I'm very privileged to do that. I was sharing with Ann Sprayberry over in the fellowship hall earlier this morning as I prepared the Lord's Supper elements. And you know, it, we act as if vacation's a new thing. Actually, we, uh, we've shortened vacations these days to a week. Uh, in the old day, uh, the men of the pulpit would often, as custom, take two months, sometimes three months in the summer, to go away, to pray, to seek God's face, to write, to study, to plan, to think. And they would return for nine months of service to the Lord in His church. And you might say, well, how could they get anything done? Well, many of them believed more was done in that three months than could ever have been done in nine months without the three. The three months was crucial. I'm not asking for three months. We're in a different society. I understand that. But it saddened me this week as I... In the afternoon, my wife loves the beach, by the way. She just, she can stay there 24 hours a day. I don't love it all that much. I do like it. I'm learning to like it more. And my kids need naps. So I take them up. They take a nap. Amy stays at the beach. And I go sit on the deck outside the little place we stay in. I think. I look at the ocean. You know, the ocean's a great thing to cause thought, reflection. And I thought, God... What's wrong with me? What's wrong with our society? Where are we headed? You know, I, I had a lot of thoughts, not a lot of deep thoughts probably, none very much. I might not want you to know all of them, but one that I do want you to think of is the pace at which we live this life and how it's killing us. It's killing us. It's killing me. It's killing you. It's killing our society, our church. You know, as I sat there and thought, reflected and read and prayed. You know, it's, it's frightening to me that we can go a couple of months without any significant rain. And nobody publicly calls the church to pray for rain. Myself included. And you say, well, that's silly. That's Old Testament stuff. I'm just not sure of that, you know. God withholds rain. God gives rain. He gives it on just and unjust. I understand that principle. But I think if we were an agrarian society, we would pray for rain when it didn't come. I know in my house, when it went a week without rain, we started praying. But we don't think about it. We don't, we don't even contemplate what, what might be in this. Might we go a year or two with no rain? And then what? I just thought about it, and that led me to think about if we won't, we won't pray for the simple blessings of a physical life, no prayer in spiritual life is probably happening either. We, I drove, we drove uh, down to Panama City, and we passed. We, I don't like 231 and all that traffic. I go 167 down through the country uh, to get there. Cotton. From here to the back of the church, nothing. And then one plant, corn, this tall, topped out, dying in the field. Soybeans that came up finger high and they're just sitting there. No rain. 
No rain. No harvest will come from those fields. Those crops are gone. They're dead. They're collecting insurance payments at best at this point. Those farmers are. And that's really what I've thought of for two or three months now in my own personal life, in my prayer life, in my life thinking for the church. And then this week, it kind of all came to a head as I thought over the passage of Matthew 9, 35-38, where the Lord calls on His men to pray to the Lord of the harvest that He send workers into His harvest field. And seeing all of this crop that's destroyed now and the lack of rain and the lack of prayer, it just brought me to think. We're not... Is it possible that we are not dependent on God that He bring a spiritual harvest to the church? Not to just this church, but to the church at large in our generation. Is it possible that we are no longer dependent on God, but rather dependent on man's schemes and plans, programs, things that may be okay in and of themselves, not evil, but yet man-made in a sense? Whipped up, emotionalism, evangelism in the worker sense of the word. Jesus went throughout, the Bible says in Matthew 9.35, all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, sowing seed, healing every disease and every affliction, When he saw the crowds, he had, you could, it says compassion probably. In your Bible, you could insert great pity. He had great pity for them because they were harassed, persecuted, driven about, they were helpless. Like sheep without a shepherd. It caught my attention, I have to admit. I I thought back to these last years here at Grace Fellowship and I thought the question that kept coming back in my thinking over the last two months and especially in this last week sitting there thinking and contemplating. The question was, might 2007 be the beginning of a harvest at Grace Fellowship? Might this year. We're halfway through, I know. Months are dwindling away. Might this be the year? Could God have used this time as a movement for His Spirit which would cause earnestness, deep, heartfelt passion for His work to spread through His Spirit in His church? Might this be the year in which God grants us to see many people converted to obedient faith in Jesus Christ? The question really is, is there a harvest coming? Or are we like those fields? A sprig of stalk here, a sprig of stalk there, corn topped out this high, no harvest. Soybeans dying from a lack of rain. Dying. These are significant questions. I I don't want to go to the future without looking back at our past and kind of reflecting. God forbid 
that we should sound ungrateful or minimize the mercy of God over these past three and a half years, four years together. Things that are significant have happened. I want to recount them for you lest you forget. This is kind of a Hebrew way of championing God. Remember the mighty works of God lest in the day of battle you be like the Ephraimites and you do not remember the powerful work of God and you turn back in fear. So let me remind you of some beautiful, wonderful works of God's grace. God has been pleased in these last years to bring a small band of about 30 people to a significant increase. We've increased over 120 people, counting the children, in that time. Somewhere at around 150 now. We've enjoyed the journey from the living room of my home on Post Oak Road to the Aniston Meeting Center to Lockett Drive. And now we stand at the edge of a day where we will be planted in a permanent home at McClellan. Eight and a half acres, two buildings that need renovation and are on the way now to renovation. A permanent home. We went from a people with no home to now the look just there, like Moses standing, looking at the promised land. It's, it's right there. It's right there. God is great. His work is great. We started, you might say, with financial balance of zero. <laughs> nothing. We had nothing. We didn't even have a home. God has blessed us to the point that now we have an operation budget and, and, and savings of about $200,000 besides the Micah Fleming Fund, which is around $60,000. In that time, we've gained the grace of this property, which was purchased for $24. I don't even think we paid the $24. I don't remember. But that was what, <laughs> that was what the price of it was. $24 for this facility. A facility nicer than most facilities for worship around the world. We got it for nothing. Free. Mr. Curry, you might remember him, some of you never met him, stood right there one afternoon on Saturday, took an agreement that we had drawn up in hopes he would sign. He was the last trustee of the church, this church, Fellowship Baptist. He took it and threw it in the floor raised his voice and said, never will I let this building be given away. Never. And we were offering to pay him for it. Never. You can use it, but I'll never sign any agreement. Less than two months passed. Aaron Acker and I went to his house. We didn't beg him. We just said, we want you to consider it again. And without even thinking, he said, I'm ready. God is good. He has blessed us mightily in these years. We've not only done that, but we've been able, through His grace, to purchase that eight and a half acres, those two buildings, debt-free, $180,000 or right around that. And I want you to know that these are all blessings from our Lord. These are not the only areas of growth that we've experienced. Our children's ministry has blossomed from a few pack-and-play beds in a room in the Aniston Meeting Center to what you see today. Over 60 children under the care of this children's ministry. And I don't think anybody that was here a couple of weeks back would argue that the children are not only growing in number, but they're growing in wisdom and stature and the knowledge of our Lord 
It's a great ministry. And that is a grace of God among us. And we take it for granted, like we take for granted rain from the sky, that these things just happen. The birth of children. I remember when Chris Agee was here. And me and him were talking. And you know that can be a long conversation between the two of us. Because <laughs> we both like to talk. And I remember we, we had nine babies on the way. Nine. We had just gotten into this facility. And, and he, he, he said, Carlton, this is a great blessing. God is entrusting your church with baby after baby after baby. It's a sign that He trusts you and this congregation to raise them in the knowledge of Christ. I, never, I have to admit, I never thought of it that way. So physical minded in myself that children just happen, you know. Procreation, biology. And, and as only Chris could do, he was in spirituality. God is entrusting you with blessings to entrusting you and these families with blessings because He trusts that you will trust Him and raise them to know His Son. So, if that be the case, then we've been blessed. We've been greatly blessed. And I believe it is the case. From a few little children to now 60. Under the eight, sixth grade, Miss Pinkston can tell you. All of this. We've seen the increase in missions out of this church to campus outreach, to every tribe ministry, Masters Academy International, several short-term ministry projects. No less than 20% of our budget has gone to benevolence and missions every year in this church's existence. It's a wonderful thing. It's a wonderful thing. And by the way, that's the total budget, not any division of the budget. It's the total budget. I want you to know that because of your faithfulness to the Word of God, we have fed the hungry, clothed the needy children, helped those who were in prison, paid the debt of a mentally and physically handicapped man along with helping him buy a car so he can transport himself around town and, and get the needs that he has for a daily uh, blessing of daily life. He, uh, we've assisted in the health needs of Micah Fleming to the point that they've had no out-of-pocket to this date for, the, for their long battle with him and his disease. That was a blessing. Helped care for the Eaton family in their trial with Campbell. Helped pray the funeral cost of two precious young people who have gone on to be with the Lord. All of that, many of you didn't know those things. We've never bragged or talked about those things. I'm not bragging about those things. I'm bragging about the grace of God. These people were not members of our church. These people were just good Christian folk outside in the community. And your deacons and your ministry, your giving, your faithfulness to God and His Word and His great grace to us has allowed these things. And that doesn't include all of it. There's many more small acts which have been done in other things that you have done as individuals during these past years as you've been prompted by the Spirit. All of these things are evidence that God is at work. And I want you to know that all of these things are very important. This does not even contain all that the Lord has done, and you know that. And if I were to borrow from the Apostle Paul, I might say, all these things cause me to thank my God for you at all times. But forgetting these things which lie behind, we now press on to the goal. We press forward, not grabbing the past, remembering the past, but moving forward. We move forward. I would say there's a need for a harvest time. 
I've been praying for it and I'm continuing to pray for this harvest time to be experienced in our day in this church. During our time as a church, God has been pleased to save 12 people through the direct ministry of this church, not counting those who've come to Christ through campus outreach. 12 people. Don't, don't, don't hear this wrong. I don't want you to misunderstand. This is not fussing. This is confession. We need a harvest at Grace Fellowship. 90% of Alabamians would say they are associated with a church of some kind. 90%. But I think it's foolish to believe that 90% are Christian. We need a harvest in our community, in our state, in our church. I think of the fact that there are so many, even maybe in this congregation, who know of the things of God in their minds, but have never experienced the heart change of the Holy Spirit. We need a harvest among our own church. And that's the harvest that I'm really talking about when I say, might 2007 be harvest time at Grace Fellowship. All these other things are wonderful. But if we miss this, have we not missed the call of the Lord Jesus on our church? That is the call. That is the commission of His disciples and of His church. Go into all the nations making disciples out of them, which includes evangelism. There's no dichotomy in evangelism and discipleship from a scriptural point of view. Evangelism is a part of discipleship. You can't make disciples of people who are not saved. And so evangelism is included in that call. And that is the commission of our church. All these other things are wonderful and needed and they're blessings, but they're not the main thing. Might this be the year? Could this be when Jesus Christ is pleased to to have this church to go and seek and save the lost? That was His call. In Luke 19, 10, He said that's what He came to do, to seek and save the lost. I don't know. I, I have no way of knowing if this 2007 will be the year. As your pastor, I can say this. I haven't been broken enough. I haven't been yielded enough. I haven't been loving enough over these years. This is confession to you. It is not your fault. It is mine. Maybe we'll have to wait. Maybe we have to wait till 2008, 2009, or in the future. Maybe not. I just, I cannot deny, Aaron and uh, Carlton have heard this already. I cannot deny that something is changing in my own heart. A movement in my own heart has begun to see this harvest happen now. There's an urgency which I haven't ever known. A call which would be what some would call a call, a new rallying in my own spirit that 07 is the year. It's not for nothing that the Lord has burdened me in this way. It's not for nothing that He's overcome Some of my fears. 
Even this past week with my family, you might say, he doesn't have fears. I have fears with my family. My, my family, my wife's family, it's my family. For years I've wanted to talk with them bluntly about the Scripture, but I have always shied away. Fear has always taken me at some point in the conversation. But there was freedom this week like, like never has existed to share the Gospel, to talk with them about the truth of Jesus Christ. An interesting thing happened, you know. Never before have I gone from Leviticus 18 and talking about the law dealing with sexual purity to the gospel. I mean, that's, you don't learn that in EE. <laughs> I, I never thought of it. I went to the beach with no thought of talking about Leviticus 18. It was brought up in discussion. And, and, and before I knew it, we were in the gospel. And that, that's a work of God. And I thank Him for that. So I come, I, sitting on that deck, I thought and I've prayed as I have in the past. And Matthew nine thirty five through 38 comes to mind. It describes a situation like ours. Because see, I believe that like Christ went about to all the cities and the villages teaching and preaching the gospel, so should we. And as He went about seeing people broken and hurting and diseased and afflicted, they're in our own city the same way. It's the same. The situation's the same. It's no different. And so I want to look at these things in the text. Just walk through this text with you. First of all, there is a need which Jesus finds. A need. I I wrote these down, and just for the sake of doing it, so Aaron could remember them. There were all these P's, except the first one was need. So I, I hit my thesaurus and found privation. There was a need, a privation among the people. If you don't attend with us much, I don't ever do this. I didn't intend to do it until I saw this last point. I thought, why not? It'd be good. Privation. There was a need. Jesus found a need among the people. Look in verse 36. When He saw the crowds, He had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless. Harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. They had Need. They were deprived of a shepherd. They were wandering around lost and hurting and broken. Dying, you might say. People without Christ are like sheep who have no shepherd. They run out of green grass to eat. They don't know what water pool to go drink out of. So in our day, all this spiritual awakening is happening. Like in Palestine in Jesus' day, all of this religious stuff is all over the place and people are dying in religion. They're going to swift moving water and getting sucked in and drowned by religion. New Age movement and, 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 and Eastern mysticism. And, and we look at the churches and their religiosity instead of a connection to Christ, a true relationship, a Christian, a real Christian relationship with Jesus. We look at our world and we say they are like a sheep without a shepherd. They hurt, they're broken, they're afflicted, they're sick, and they won't help, but they don't know where to go to get it. Why? Because they have no shepherd. And so Jesus saw the need. He saw this great group of people and their great needs. I mentioned that, you know, polls differ all over the place. The most excited poll was that Alabama is about 90% in their claim of an affiliation with the church. Nine out of ten walk up to them today on the street and they say, Oh yeah, 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 I'm a member of so-and-so church. That we're religious people. Same would have been true in Jesus' day. 
in Palestine. They all would have said, oh yeah, we're part of it, man. We're with it. First church of Jerusalem. That's us. First synagogue. We're part of that Jewish movement. And yet there's this great need. If we take time to step back, to slow down, to think, to think the thoughts of our Lord, we would see them hurting, broken, sick, afflicted. And we should notice that. That's the first thing in this passage. Secondly, we notice in verse 36 that He had pity on them. He had pity on them. Compassion on them. The word means to literally be moved in one's stomach. To be moved in your bowels. You've, you've had that feeling where people, you know, where something tragic happens and that sick feeling hits you in your gut. Well, I had a loved one is sick or dying. And you, you look at that situation and it just wrenches your insides. That's pity. That's compassion. That's compassion. You know, I've, I've experienced that feeling. I know many of you have experienced that feeling of pity. But I wonder this. Have I or you ever felt that pity over spiritual lostness? Ever. See, that's what Jesus felt pity about. Oh, there'll always be poor people. He made that statement very clear. And there'll always be sick people. And there'll always be afflicted people. But I believe what moved Him to compassion was the fact that they were sheep without a shepherd. That's what He was compassionate about. Don't hear me wrong. It's not wrong to feel sorry for the homeless man or woman or child who needs, we should feel pity for them. It's not wrong to feel pity for someone in great physical pain or disease. We should feel pity for them. It's not wrong to hurt for your loved ones when they hurt. We should hurt with them. The only thing left to ask is why not when they're spiritually dead are we not pitiful for them? Why is our stomach not churned for them? Why are we not moved in our spirit? What's wrong with us? What's wrong with me that I can pass my neighbor's throw up a wave and know that unless someone shares the gospel, they go to hell. They go to hell. That's a fact lost on American Christianity, I believe. It's a fact that's been lost on me and probably on you. And that is that when you drive by those homes of people watering their grass, playing with their children, going about their business, and you know they're lost when you look at them, you might, if you're not willing to feel pity and share, share the faith with them, you might as well look them in the eye with a smile on your face and say, have a nice trip to hell. Enjoy the ride. That's what our church has become in America. No pity for the lost. No pity. You say... That sounds like emotionalism. That's what they told Jonathan Edwards too when he made similar statements. But I want to tell you quickly that that's not a whipped up emotion that you feel. Because that pity, seeing Christ with this pity, it's no less than the pity you felt for Jerusalem. Right? I've wanted to bring you under my wings like a hen does her chicks, but you would not. And he cried over them. Where does that come from? That's not natural. That cannot come from within us and our own personhood. That comes from the Spirit of God. The wickedness of our world will never grieve us. The plight of their, of their 
eternity will never bother us until the Spirit of God prompts it from us. Prompts that emotion, that compassion, that heart-wrenching, gut-churning pity. And you say, what, what good does it do to talk about it? I just feel guilty. I just feel beat up when I leave messages like this. Well, I hope this next word brings encouragement to you. Notice that Jesus saw potential in His disciples. See, it doesn't say that the disciples felt any pity for these people. Do you see that? Jesus had great compassion on them because they looked as if they had no shepherd. Does it say the disciples felt that pity? They didn't feel it. They're like us. They walked by these people. They went around with Jesus. They saw people saved. They saw people healed. They thought, what a wonderful thing. They had no personal pity. They're just tagging along. So what does Jesus say? He says, you have potential. How does He say that? Look there in verse 37. He said to His disciples, the harvest is plentiful. Now that's a statement that a reaper makes to fellow reapers. When they're headed to the field together, the leader would often say, the harvest is plentiful. That let all the servants know we're in for a good day's work. There's potential in this field. We've got a great task before us. Jesus is making that statement to His fellow servants of the gospel. He's saying, you feel no pity at this moment? You've never thought of being a great reaper? The harvest is plentiful. Harvest is plentiful. Potential is there. Don't have that loss. Not only potential inside the disciples and potential inside of us, but there's potential in the world. God has not left a chance or circumstance the coming of one person to Himself for salvation. He has worked tirelessly. He has run after the lost sheep of Israel to bring them back to Himself. God is ahead of us in this work and He's working. All the time. And so we would say as we look at Jacksonville, not with desperation. We don't look at Calhoun County with desperation and say, oh, we've got to try to trick them, hook them, hoodwink them, whatever we can do to get them to come here. No, we say God is at work. The harvest is plentiful. There is potential. People are there to be saved. They're there. We don't have to create them. We don't have to make them. We don't have to guilt them. They're there. Right for the harvest. Right for the harvest. And so we have potential in front of us. Do you look upon your neighbors, your colleagues, your classmate, maybe your associate that you live near, people that are just in your neighborhood, do you look at them and say, that is a potential Christian? That's a potential Christian. Do you look at them that way? Do you see them through Christ's eyes? There's a great harvest. He saw it. He had pity. He saw their need. He had pity. He saw potential in them. When Jesus said that it is hard for rich people to enter the kingdom, the disciples responded, then who can be saved? Because they understood that everybody's rich. Everybody in this country is rich. Let me repeat that. Every one of us is rich. I told Amy, 92% of the world does not own a vehicle, not one car. They don't own one. 92% of the world. 
8% owns a car, 6% is in the United States. And here most people have two or three or more. Now, I'm not against that. I'm just saying we are rich people. Do you know that no less than two billion people will go to bed tonight and not have eaten one bite of food today? And they don't know where they'll get the bite tomorrow. Two billion. And I would say anybody in this country who goes to bed without anything to eat, anything, probably chose to go to bed that way. Because there's food in our society. Excess food. Go. I, I've watched it happen at McDonald's late at night when they're going to throw hamburgers away. And they go out the back door and they kindly lay them on the ground so that homeless people can pick up hamburgers and eat them. The homeless in our society have food if they seek it. There's people around the world who will go to bed tonight and their children will go to bed tonight with nothing. We wash our cars with clean water. Those same people have no clean water. I'm just saying, we are rich. And the disciples understand that because they say, Jesus, who can be saved? Not how can that guy get saved or how can that guy get saved? Well, he's got a big savings account. He's in trouble. No. They said, how are we going to be saved? We're rich. And Jesus said, with you and with men, it is impossible. But what? What is impossible with men is possible with God. It is possible with God that we, the rich of the world, are saved. If there is going to be a harvest in this church at Grace Fellowship, it will not be because there are so so many great gospel sharers. It won't be based on us. The harvest is impossible with us. New birth is a miracle. Our goal of reaching the world for for the name of Christ is impossible for us. That's what makes it possible for God. It's a failure when it's in our... But it's not a failure for Him. He will accomplish it. But what's the missing link then? Because we see the need. We need to have pity, obviously. There is potential. What's left? In the verse, what's left? Verse 38. What does He say? What does He command them to do? Pray. Pray. He doesn't say, go get the Word. Go pick some. Go do something. He says, beg God. It's impossible with you. It's possible with God. You're going to depend on yourself. You'll never do it. So what do we do, Jesus? Prayer is the language of a contrite and broken heart that says, God, I can't help anybody, but only you can. And I would say that that is the missing link in my life. I'm not going to speak for you. In my life, the reason I'm not seeing the need, the reason I'm not feeling pity, the reason I'm not seeing potential, the reason all these things are true is because I don't pray as I should. I don't pray as I should. I think, well... You know, there's other things to do. It's so important. I've got to get busy. I've got a schedule. I've got meetings. I've got Bible studies. All this stuff is good stuff. Got to preach Sunday. Got to study hard. Confession from me, 
Why not more souls in these four years at Grace Fellowship? Because Carlton Weathers has not prayed that God would do it. I've tried to do it. Maybe you've tried to do it. And so we will fail. Because it's impossible with us. It's impossible. But it is possible with Him. So I will be encouraged that this is the year of harvest for our church when we as a church are broken in prayer, I'll then say, there's, there's opportunity. It could happen in 2007. If it doesn't, if no prayer happens, if I preach this message, we go home, nothing's changed. What a wonderful message. Praise God. He got back from Panama City. He's energized. Wow, it'll wear off in a week or two. And nobody prays. Then I'll say in my own heart, not in judgment, but in my own heart, God, I'm not broken enough. I'm not praying enough. I'm not where I need to be. So make me there for 2008 because it won't happen this year. And so we'll just continue to preach the Word of God and teach the Word of God. And we'll continue to seek out prayer in our own lives, hoping and praying that God will do what only He can do. But when we look at this text, we can't move past the fact that prayer is the ingredient of a harvest. That's it. Prayer. I want to give one example. We'll do the Lord's Supper here, calling us to look at Christ in prayer. Jeremiah Lamphere. Many of you wouldn't know him. I didn't know him. Uh, I found him as an example in, an, in another in a commentary. But this commentator wrote that 130 years ago, about 140 now from the date of the commentary, in New York City, Jeremiah Lamphere is an example of how prayer works in evangelism. In the 1850s, there was a secular and religious condition combined to bring about a crash all around. There was a panic that swept America because, now think of this, because their wealth became bankrupt almost overnight. Banks began to call in foreclosure on debt. There was a great shrinking back of the economy. Everybody had been speculating on growth and growth and growth and more growth. Sound familiar? Speculating. It's going to keep going. It's going to keep that We hadn't reached the ceiling. And then we reached the ceiling and the economy dropped back and people lost all their wealth. They went from wealth to poverty overnight. Their factories shut down. The bank, the bank, the, uh, the bank called in their foreclosures. The, the railroad systems began to lay off workers. New York City had 30,000 men without a job. 30,000 men roaming the streets with nothing to do. In October of 1857, the hearts of the people were thoroughly weaned from any speculation. Hunger, despair looked them in the face for the first time in their generation. That's us. That's where we are. We've never known. We've never known starvation in this country in my lifetime. Not even close to it. Probably not in most of your lifetimes. Maybe a few of you experienced the fringe end of the Depression. Most of you are post-World War II or right at World War II, which was the upswing. So we've been in prosperous times and now what I'm saying is we're right where they were in 1857 when everything came crashing down. On July the 1st, 1857, a quiet businessman named Jeremiah Lanthier took up an appointment as a city missionary in downtown New York. Lanthier was appointed by the North Church of the Dutch 
reformed denomination. This church was suffering from depletion of membership because everybody was moving to the suburbs. He was a city missionary and he engaged in his work diligently, visiting people, trying to reach neighborhoods, doing all this work with no result. He was burdened. He was burdened. And so what did he do? He began to pray at noon every day for one hour. Every Wednesday for one hour. He, he passed out a track. And this is what the track said. How often shall I pray? As often as the language of prayer is in my heart. As often as I see my need for, of help. As often as I feel the power of temptation. As often as I am made sensible of any spiritual declination or feel the aggression of a worldly spirit. In prayer, we leave the business of time for that of eternity and intercourse with men for intercourse with God. A day prayer meeting is held every Wednesday, he said, from 12 to 1 o'clock in the consistory building in in the North Dutch Reformed Church at the corner of Fulton and William Street. This meeting is intended to give merchants Mechanics, clerks, strangers, businessmen, generally an opportunity to stop and call upon God amid the perplexities in this society. It will continue for one hour, but it's designed for you to come and go at five-minute intervals, ten-minute intervals. Accordingly, at 12 noon, September 23, 1857, he was there. Lanfear began his meeting. He took his seat. He waited for the response of his invitation. Five minutes went by. No one came. Ten minutes, fifteen, twenty, thirty minutes passed and he heard the footsteps of the first person. Six people came on that first day and they prayed fervently before God for one hour. And then at 12.30, the next, time, the next Wednesday, more people came. And on the following Wednesday, they had 40 people gathered. In, fir- in the first week of October 1857, They wanted to hold the meeting every day at lunch. Six months passed. 10,000 businessmen joined the prayer meeting in that one month. 10,000. Within two years, a million people were converted and added to the American church through a prayer meeting that started with six people. really started with one man. No fanaticism. No hysteria. They did one thing. They begged God, the Lord of the harvest, to bring in the harvest. And He did it. So my question is this. Is there any Jeremiah Lanfears among us? Is there anybody who would say, I'm going to beg God one hour a day 30 minutes, 5 minutes, I'm going to beg God. I have three challenges as I close. First, I want to challenge you to look inward. Look inside yourself to know if you have pity, if you see the need. That's what I want you to do. I want you to think of those things. Is that existing in my life? If not, repent and beg God to send the blessing of His Spirit on you that you might see what He sees. That's the first challenge to you from this message. Secondly, I would say, begin actively to think of everybody in your, lo- in your life as the lost sheep. Everybody. Don't assume anybody's saved. 
Not even your husband or wife. Don't assume anybody is a Christian. But lovingly share the gospel at every turn. Scatter the seed. Jesus went to every city in every synagogue and preached the gospel and healed the afflicted. Every city and every synagogue. It means He spread it widely. So for you that might be Honda or JSU or wherever you are. Wherever you are. That's my second challenge to you. Look at the world as lost. Everybody. In a broken way. Third. Finally. I want to ask you to do this. This week. And this we, we don't do this all the time. I, I feel like this is a good thing. If not for you, good. Don't do it. I'm calling you as a church to fast and pray. I'm personally going to fast starting Monday for seven days. Every meal. I'm asking you to fast one meal a day. Just one. Don't eat it. A meal you normally eat, don't eat it. And spend that 30 minutes praying for the lost sheep in our world and for God to make us feel pity for the lost. Beg Him to do the harvest in our church this year. For one week, seven days, seven meals, seven 30-minute intervals. That's what I'm asking you to do. As individuals, do that. If God moves on you, do it. Pray. Seek His face. That's all. I'm not going to launch some program, some flashy thing. No billboards. No goals. The goal is this. Seek God that He might bring His harvest into His barn for eternity. Seek God. That's all. That's the goal. If we do that for seven days, He will be pleased to show us our sin, to draw us to Himself, and to break our hearts for those who are lost. He'll be pleased to do that. And we will have done a great thing in His name. So that's the, that's the invitation if you want that. that that's it. That's the call. We've come to take the Lord's Supper also. I, I know that we are going late. And so I, I just want to take the prerogative to, to move that till next week. I don't want to extend this unduly. This has been a long message. I've had overflow, you might say, of heart. It's too important of a service to just shove it in at the end so we can say we did it. Okay? So let's just wait on that. It'll be okay. Third Sunday's work too. I want to close. I want to close with this. A personal example related to my life as a child. I've told you often of my granny. She influenced me probably more than any human until I got married. Now my wife holds great influence over me. She's 84 when I was seven, eight years old. She died at 88. When she was 84, we were in her garden. I was seven years old. And we were talking about farming, about what we've been talking about, sowing seed. And she was relating that to the gospel. I don't know. I have this sense. I had to ask her maybe in glory if she thought I was going to be a preacher or something. I don't know. But she was telling me about this harvest work. And we, we got done in the garden and we sat down under She had this huge oak tree. She said it was a big tree when she was a little child. So it had to be been an old tree, you know. We sat down under the shade of that tree. She had her bonnet on, her apron. We were sweaty. 
And I sat right next to her. And she would sing and she would pray and she would talk to me about spiritual things. This day she said, son, do you see that field over there? Across the, field, uh, across the yard, my daddy farmed cotton over there. It's our family farm. It's about 100 acres there under cultivation at that time. My grandmother said, you see that field? I said, yes. She said, my daddy put that field into cultivation. Every year he'd take in a little more, a little more, and a little more. And he'd get more workers, and they'd work that field. And they'd grow cotton. She said, son, in your spiritual life, you can't take in the whole hundred acres at one time. It's too much. You take in a little, and the next year you take in some more. And the next year you take in some more. And the next year more, more. It takes a long time, she said, to have an impact for God among a group of people. It takes a long time. And she launched off into this story about how preachers come and go nowadays. Nowadays, preachers, they come and go. They come and go. She said, they think the work of God is done in lurches in just little minutes. But I want you to know, when I was a kid, the way they took in a field was how they worked in a church. A little at a time. And they stayed for years. And so, from the very beginning, you know that I have, I have said that. Grace Fellowship is not about running a sprint and trying to achieve some short-term goal. We're going to take in a little of that 100 acres every opportunity we have. Just a little. Okay? And we're going to do it together. We're going to do it together. My family with you as a family will take in the field a little at a time, a little at a time, and see God do His work. It'll take years sometimes to see it, but it will happen. Because I want to tell you, in the 60 years they had been cultivating that field, it had become soft and fertile, and it was our best field. It went from trees and kudzu to a fertile field. It took 60 years. How long will it take the church to grow? 60 years? 100 years? It'll take God's time. It's His harvest. It's His field. And we have the privilege to pray God send us to the harvest. Let's pray together. Father, You're a Magnificent God, we really are caught off guard by your holiness. And as we've been humbled in these moments to think about our lack of pity, our lack of seeing the needs, Lord, let no one leave guilt-ridden. Let no one leave this place hurt in the sense that they're defeated. But let them see the potential that is there. Let them go into this week looking through your eyes, begging you to do what only you can do and let them see this great harvest field with great potential. And may we be committed to this work, not just for a week, but for weeks and months and years and decades. And if you please, Lord, century. After a hundred years, may they say of Grace Fellowship, They prayed and begged God to reap a harvest because they knew He was faithful and He would do what He said. 
He would gather His people from the four ends of the earth to Himself for His own name and for His own glory. We pray that as sinful men, knowing if you don't do it, we can't. So Lord, do it. Be pleased with it. Do what's pleasing in your sight. In your name we pray, Lord Jesus. Amen. You have the announcements. You're dismissed.